0: and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy Ish. I'm Danielle Moody.
2: And I'm a (laughs) Lee.
1: And we are so excited uh, to welcome to Democracy-ish, I believe for the very first time, Madi Hassan, whose new book, uh, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading and Public Speaking is hot now. Uh, out in these streets, out in these New York Times streets, um, as well as if you're not watching the Mehdi Hassan uh, show, which is on MSNBC, as well as streaming on Peacock, uh, you are truly missing out on some fine uh, debating. And Mehdi, I have to say, having both Wajahat and Ellie Mistel on the same panel it was like you just wanted to piss white people off like it was just like it was clearly your goal um but i'll turn to wajahat for his movie phone introduction which we love
2: i don't even need to do a movie phone introduction that was a fantastic uh, introduction by itself pick up Mehdi's book which is a new york times bestseller uh and yes Mehdi was kind enough and crazy enough to have me and ellie on i believe a few days ago Uh, To talk about uh, the ongoing investigation against Trump and Ron DeSantis, and and right now we're conducting this uh, as uh, as uh, fasting brown men. So the fact that you've joined us may be fasting and exhausted. We appreciate it.
3: Danielle has an advantage over both of us today.
2: Yeah, she she (laughs) this is this is like a landmine for both of us because Danielle can just extract all sorts of juicy revenge. Uh, But first of all, I want I want people to really read your book. I read the book. Uh, We've hosted a conversation because. Uh, Some might think, listen, I can't do what Mehdi does. Mehdi you know, saved Islam on YouTube. He's a debating champion. He went to Oxford. He grills these folks. He's a host on MSNBC. I don't have the confidence. Public speaking terrifies me. So when Mehdi writes a book called How to Win Every Argument, uh, I'm not convinced. To those folks who say, I just don't have the talent and I'm not Mehdi, I can't do it. What do you say to them?
3: Well, let me make the counter argument. Um, The reason I wrote the book Uh, is because I am firmly of the view uh, that everyone needs this book, everyone. And it's not about, oh, can you be like me? Can you do a show? Can you interview people? That's not the goal. Might be for some of the people watching or listening, that's fine. But I would say three things. Uh, Number one, everyone at some point in their life uh, needs to win an argument. Like We can't avoid it. Every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet has come to a point where they're like, I have to be able to win this argument. I have to be able to persuade the other person. I have to be able to convince a room full of people. Uh, number two, people who say, well, you know, I don't like arguing. I'm not good at arguing. That's because they lose arguments, I would argue. I would argue if you got used to winning, uh, you wouldn't be so anti-arguing or run away from it. So let me show you how to win. And number three, I do genuinely believe that people are not born this way. I know people say, oh, you came out of the womb arguing. And maybe I did. But I genuinely believe that there's a nature versus nurture issue here. And I'm trying to focus Mm -hmm. on the nurture point here. And the point I say in the book is I bring examples, not just from my own life, but from throughout human history, ancient Greece, World War II, et cetera, et cetera, citing people who were not great speakers, people who today we consider as great uh, masters of rhetoric. Uh, Demosthenes, the famous Greek orator, who was so bad at speaking when he started out that he banished himself to a Batman-style underground cavern where he shaved off half of his head so he'd be too embarrassed to go outside and spent months and months just practicing in front of a mirror. Today, he's regarded as one of the fathers of rhetoric, Winston Churchill. We remember him as, fight them on the beaches, wins World War II. He was such a bad speaker that he got mocked and heckled in the House of Commons. He used to practice speaking in his bathtub. So what I say in the book is, look, there are tricks, there are techniques that you can pick up. Everyone can become a better speaker, a better persuader, a better debater. And I say in the book, let me show you how through practical examples.
1: You know, I I love this one because I have spent most of my life arguing Um, and that is just, you know, par for the course, I think, of being uh, one of the only ones, only black person, only black child in a classroom, only black person in your, you know, in your university political studies class. Like, you know, being the only one forces you to have sharp elbows in a lot of ways and I, I think that we have gotten to a place where people see the word "argument," right, And they're exhausted by it. They think to themselves, "I'm tired of arguing. Like why can't we just come? Why can't we, yes. quote unquote, just come together? So I, I, right. So so i I almost think that if we had been taught medi from the beginning, that it wasn't impolite to have conversations about religion at the dinner table, that it wasn't impolite to talk about politics, that had we learned to really debate and argue and understand where each other was coming from and be forced yeah. to provide facts and information, do you think that we would be here now? Is it part of quote unquote polite culture yeah. that has us in probably one of the most um defiant and kind of uh, disgusting times in terms of our cordialness towards one another. I think you need a good civility, point.
2: Danielle,
3: civility, Daniel, yeah. civility. I think you make a good point uh, about our current moment. And yes, this is goes beyond our current moment. There is a, you know, I say in the book, argument gets a bad rap. It's blamed for everything from political polarization to marital breakdown. I quote Dale Cunningham, who said, you know, I run away from arguments. I run away from the, like I would run away from rattlesnakes. And I say, no, I run towards arguments because I genuinely believe that you cannot have a functioning democracy, a free press, uh, a public square, unless you have good faith disagreements. And good faith is key. here. I'm not saying to have bad faith, pointless, trollish arguments. I'm saying have good faith debates based around kind of a common set of facts and figures and a common goal. Um, So you're right to say that, you know, I wish wish we taught kids in school uh, how to debate better. Uh, You know, civics classes uh, incorporated the idea of debate. I know we have high school debate, Uh, which my daughter does, it's a little bit, you know, a little bit not real, uh, which I have a problem with the way high school debate is done. It's uh, it's not really the real world. And my book is very much about winning arguments in the real world. But you're right. You are a black woman. I'm a Muslim man. When we argue, we are immediately hit with tropes like, oh, don't get angry. Uh, And don't get annoyed. And don't get, you know, don't get so aggressive. And don't be so combative. Uh, Because, you know, uh, the people who say let's all just get along tend to be uh, white people in positions of power and privilege who don't need to argue because they've already won the argument.
1: Come on. (laughs) Mm.
2: Yeah, and and, and you're mentioning those people who tell the rest of us to be civil, um, especially as we're facing a barrage uh, of violence every day. Gun shootings, Muslim ban, LGBTQ communities under attack. Ah, uh, don't say gay. I mean, this is the top of my list. Forget about civics. We're banning books now. We're banning AP Amer- African American history. And in this climate, especially, Mehdi, as we're dealing with, in my opinion, a, a radicalized, weaponized, extremist GOP movement, we still have calls from Democrats to be civil. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and as you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, uh, take the higher road. Yeah, well, uh, and as you know, one of the most annoying
3: the, things, and I say this as a Michelle <laughs> Obama fan, was when she said, mm-hmm. when they go, when they go low, we go high. Like, no. That has been a unilateral disarmament on the part of le- liberals and progressives in this country.
2: This is a safe space to attack that comment. We love Michelle Obama, but we hate that statement as well. Yes. but you know, especially many of the Democratic base, and I would say the majority, are upset that Democrats uh, have the winning argument but don't make it. Mm. So the question I have to you is, why is why are Democrats incapable of making the argument? Yeah. And I, I just gave you like a laundry list of some of the situations and some of the topics where they can. And what, if you could consult them, right? If you could be like the magic wand and like, listen, just take a two day course with me. Let me give you some talking points. Yeah. And let me tell you how to really do some haymakers and uppercuts, especially with what we've witnessed this week, maybe the the, the shooting. I mean, yeah. it's Wednesday and we've already forgotten, but there was another mass shooting in Nashville. Six people, including three kids died. Yeah. And literally Republicans are openly saying, well, we can't do anything about it. It's like, it's like a win. I hate to say this. It's a goldmine opportunity for Democrats. To pounce on Republicans right now, and they still haven't taken it
3: yeah, so I in the book the book is not a political book, but the book I make, but the point I make in in one of the early chapters on you know feelings, not just facts, is that progressives, liberals, Democrats, everywhere in the world, not just the United States, I talk about my own experience growing up in the u k, the labor Party in the u k The same issue bedevils center left movements across the Western world, which is they end up very technocratic, very managerial. Are always on the defensive and not really in tune with people's emotions, with their hopes and fears. And the right have actually mastered the art of engaging people's emotion in a very dark way, appealing to our you know base prejudices, our fears, loathing, paranoia, sense of victimhood, and grievance. Uh, In a way that you know, and you see that with the Donald Trump campaign in 2016, and again in 2020, and now. Um, And yet, you know, the example I give in the book, which is Michael Dukakis, who is 1988, he's at the presidential debate, he's up against Bush Senior. And the anchor, the host says, what if Kitty Dukakis, you're against the death penalty. What if she, your wife is raped and murdered? Would you oppose the death penalty? And Michael Dukakis gives a very long rambling answer about how crime's falling in Massachusetts, how he wants to hold a hemispheric summit on drugs, how he's going to fund the DEA. No actual response with any kind of an emotion, very cold response. when people are- kills, his, his- kills his campaign. Yeah, kills his campaign. His campaign manager says, when I saw that answer, I knew we'd lost. That people wanted to hear their future commander in chief react with some emotion to the idea that his wife had just been hypothetically raped and killed, and he didn't show any emotion. So my number one goal uh, when I talk about you know what should Democrats on the left or liberals do anywhere in the world is emotion, appeal to people with emotion, uh, to connect with people's feelings, um, win the argument here in the heart, not just here in the head. And, you know, the answer, you asked the question, why? I don't know why. There are many, many reasons why. Is it because uh, the left and liberals are filled with kind of lawyers uh, who went to law school and think it's all just about Socratic argument? Um, Is it liberal arts, education, the idea that we should all just engage in reasoned debate? But for some reason, we have ceded this emotional space, the battlefield over emotions. You know, we just, you know, I say in the book, Hillary Clinton Clinton wants to bring a 16-point childcare proposal. Uh, to respond to Donald Trump saying, build a wall. It's just not a fair fight. You and I have talked for years about how you know, Democrats bring, you know, Republicans bring a bazooka to a knife fight and Democrats bring uh, you know, a butter knife or a harshly worded policy paper. So it's a, real a dull fight. pencil fight. And I think you know, guns is a classic example of that. How on earth, how on earth, think about one issue right now, not just gun control. We also have Donald Trump in Waco a few days ago, mm-hmm. uh, glorifying insurrectionists with the mm-hmm. J6 fire. Mm. I never knew such a choir existed, the J6 choir. Insurrectionists singing together with the president, right? How in an age where the former president of the United States, de facto leader of the Republican Party, glorifies people who attack the police, and the Republican Party is totally fine with guns being in the hands of the worst mass shooters and criminals, how in that era has the Democratic Party ceded the title of law and order party to the Republicans? How? That just, if the Martian, if the proverbial Martian landed from out of space and said, hold on, explain to me your politics here. How is that party, the party of law and order, the party that is tough on crime? I find it astonishing that the Democrats have not, ceded, uh, have not succeeded in labeling yeah. the right and conservatives and Republicans as the pro-crime party, the pro-mass shooting party, the pro-school shooter party. There's, they've made it clear, as you said, in recent days, we've heard Republican politicians say, nothing we can do about it. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. That is effectively a pro-school shooting stance. We, we're, we're fine with these shootings. Yeah. We don't want to do anything to stop it. And yet, you know, even, even coming out on the day of a shooting, even coming out on the day of a shooting and addressing this stuff is seen as, oh, that's a taboo. You've got to wait. Republicans say, we can't talk about this right now. And Democrats go along with it. Where is the outrage? <laughs> where, is the, where is the moral anger? I say in the book, one of the best ways to convince an audience is showing a sense of moral outrage. You're saying, how dare you? Where is that? when kids are being gummed down in our schools.
1: From the New Yorker staff writer, Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the Senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions Questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold.
0: Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun and candidates in states with razor thin margins listen to build the change now wherever you get your podcasts
1: I think it's you know what what's so frustrating in listening to you is that democrats All they do is feel like, well, we have the facts on our side. Yes, I've heard I've I've heard Democrat my entire life and time and career in politics and policy. I have heard that phrase. Well, we have the facts on our side. And what I say to that in response is nobody gives a fuck about your facts because they've made Mm. up their own. Right. Like they've made up an entire you know alternative universe that they exist in so, and i think that the, the the best the the best reaction that i saw on monday was not from a politician it was from the a mother yes. that jumped yeah. in front of the cameras in nashville that said aren't you tired of coming down here aren't yeah. you tired of this that had survived her the a, a, a mass shooting herself yeah. And then she was able to not just not only give the statistics of the fact that now kids die. The number one killer of kids is guns, right? Yeah. She, so she dropped a fact. She dropped a statistic, but she didn't lead with it. She lived yeah. with the rage of being a mother that's tired of being scared, when, scared for the life of her child when she takes her child to school.
3: Isn't it interesting that, you know, you have this Ben Shapiro line that the right pretend to love that facts don't care about your feelings as if they are the kind of rational group of people that are just obsessed with logic and premises and conclusions. The reality is that the right understand better than anyone else that the reverse is actually true, that feelings don't care about your facts. The entire modern conservative movement and the rise of Trump is premised on that. And my point in the book is not to say that, you know, liberals, people of good faith should embrace a facts don't, uh, feelings don't care about your facts. But they should embrace the idea that feelings are more important than facts. As you say, lead mm. with feelings. Have facts, mm-hmm. but lead with feelings. And it's interesting that, you know, when you look at, for example, the most what's the most, for me, what's the most powerful thing that people have been sharing online this week? It isn't kind of graphs showing the number of people who have died in America versus the number of people who died in Europe, which we already know. About. It's actually this Washington Post piece uh, that shows what happens uh, when a bullet enters the body, uh, mm. when two kids Uh, from Uvalde. I think Uvalde, whose parents allowed for this reconstruction to be done. Because again, it's visceral. This is what a bullet does to a child's body. We've had this debate in the media. Should we show graphic images of dead kids? We have that discussion all the time. We show it in foreign conflicts. We show dead kids. When Elan Kurdi showed up on a beach uh, the Syrian child who died during the down that, that actually changed people's hearts and minds on migrants much more than any statistic or opinion poll or fact about borders did. Uh, because unfortunately, whether we like or not, that's the kind of thing that changes people's hearts and minds on a visceral level, on a gut level. And of course, Of course, there's a problem, which is uh, totally understandable, that a lot of parents don't want to see their kids like that. But we've heard from pediatric doctors, we've heard from coroners that if you saw what we saw after these mass shootings, Mm. gun control debate would be over. There'd be no debate about it. And that's because it's not about a factual argument. It's about how people feel about this sick stuff. And also, by the way, people feel this outrage only in short periods of time. We're only human. We move on, right? We get outrage. Next day, we're back to normal. And that's why you do this idea that like, now is not the time to talk about this. Stuff. No, 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 no. Now is exactly the time to talk about it. It's like when someone famous dies and they're an awful person. And if you say something about what they no, now is not the time to talk. No, actually, now is exactly the moment when everyone's talking about it and actually feeling something about that person to remind, you know, a proper obituary, not just a kind of hagiography.
2: The Irish were tap dancing when the queen died. I just want to bring that up. Uh, but I want to I sit here for one second with feelings, uh, maybe, because uh, when I travel the world, the number one question I get about America, and, and people are very sincere, especially in Europe. They're like, why are you so obsessed with guns? And, and you and I have discussed this before, some dark humor that the right wing in America is far more terrifying than the right wing in, in, say, uh, England or other places, because over there, they don't have guns. Yeah. They'll use sticks. They'll use like, you know, uh, broken shards of glass. I mean, yeah. it's still dangerous, but in America, there are 400 million guns. There are more guns than people. And as Danielle said, guns have become the leading cause of death of kids. And as of today, there are 130 mass shootings in 2023 alone. Yeah. And if you're good at math, I'm not. That's more mass shootings than days. Just Just stick with feeling for a second. You have come here from England. How alien, how obscene, how strange, how terrifying is it for you as a citizen who was once an immigrant to come to this country with kids and see this in the news every day and this country does nothing?
3: It's without doubt the most appalling thing about living in the United States. And if you ask me what's the worst thing about living here, it is having to drop my kids at the school bus stop uh, or at the school gate every day. Without a shadow of a doubt. Anyone who's moved here. And I don't know, there was this shooting in Virginia recently where the teacher took a bullet. From a uh-huh. six-year-old right yep. and i don't yep. know if you saw the video of the mother outside the gate who was from england who said i'm only here because my husband's in the military what is wrong with you people she said as she walked away taking her child safely home for outrage that she has to live through this so yeah you have you need foreigners ideally not piers morgan to come and remind you <laughs> that this is not how the rest of the world lives no one else lives like this everyone else in the world has video games and drugs, and marijuana, and mental health issues, uh, and transgender kids, uh, and crime, but we don't have mass shootings anywhere else uh, in the Western world, developed world. So that's one point. But again, let's just talk about feelings. Let's just talk about emotion. The gun control debate is not a debate about facts, because if it was a debate over, the facts and figures are all on one side, to quote you, Danielle, the facts are only on one side of this argument. There are no other facts about uh, the number of deaths. So the issue then becomes, so why is it so hard to get change? Obviously, there's a legislative issue we know that Republicans in Congress use a broken minority uh, government system to block any change that's backed by 90% of Americans, right? 90% of Americans don't agree on anything in this country. They don't agree on apple pie uh, being a national dish, but 90% of Americans agree on background checks and basic uh, gun reform. My position is this. You say 400 million guns are in America. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful statistic, but it implies one gun per person. That's obviously not the case. A minority yeah. of Americans own the vast majority of guns in this country. I think uh, a majority of American households do not own a gun. And I think what you have to do first, if if you're ever going to win this debate, is people need to stop living in a defensive world, in a defensive crouch, conceding from the get-go that we can't do that about guns because guns are as American as apple pie. So we've got to kind of tinker around the edges. That's BS, right? I've long ago come to the conclusion that you need a much more radical approach. For example, why is there no one on the liberal side uh, I'm not saying everyone, but why is it not even a faction of people saying time to get rid of the Second Amendment? Because people say, you can't say it about the Second Amendment. They'll come for you. They're saying it anyways. You want to talk about yep. argument? The other side, whatever you say, whatever common sense, minor, milk toast proposal you come up with, they say they're coming for the Second Amendment. So you might as well go for the Second Amendment, right? If you're going to have a basic premise of argumentation, reframe the argument, fight on your ground, not their ground. So why not say, yeah, let's talk about the Second Amendment. Let's talk about what the hell the Second Amendment means, whether it's still relevant today, whether we're interpreting it correctly, whether it's time to get rid of the whole thing, right? And that puts your opponents on the defensive, rather than liberals, progressives are always on the defensive. Oh, I'm not saying anything about the Second Amendment. I just want common sense, Come and go. That doesn't work. It hasn't worked for years. Even the big bipartisan gun control bill they passed last year in Congress, everyone's slapping themselves on the back. It makes hardly any difference to stuff like what we saw this week. We need a much more radical approach. You need to raise the bar and you need to put your opponents on the defensive. Question the Second Amendment. Question American gun culture culture. Is gun culture part of America? No, it's not. It's a very modern phenomenon. The NRA wasn't even a, a thing until 40, 50, 60 years ago. And the way we interpret the Second Amendment wasn't even a thing until 20, 30 years ago. So let's start let's start pushing back on these fake traditions about what it means to be American, how integral guns is to America, how hard it is to change people's views to guns. No, 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 no. You need to aim much higher.
0: And candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. Yeah, I, you know, and I, I, I hear that because I'm like, we just have started to take it as normal and as okay that Republican officials pose with their children with AR-15s <laughs> and mm. send that out as Christmas cards. But dare, dare, I. I, dare I have a child that needs gender affirming care? I'm the one that needs to go to jail. I'm the one that's endangering a child. Dare if, I take my own fucking kid,
3: kid to read a book about right, Ruby Bridges?
1: Or to read a book about Ruby Bridges mm. by a drag queen. I'm the <laughs> one that needs to be locked up. But you have a child that is posing with a gun that is bigger than them. And so that what, is where, and that where, is considered where are, normal?
3: Where are elected Democrats? On the floor of the house, calling out their opponent, saying, "You guys are grooming your kids. You guys are child abuse." Where is that? Can you imagine any Democrat having the guts to come on the House floor and call out Andy Ogles for posting? I just saw in 2016 he posted that this yep. is a that was a post. picture. That was a Christmas picture. There's a worse picture that I've just seen doing the rounds from Instagram for 2016 that he posted a picture of a of a, a toddler or a baby holding a gun, saying, "Kind of teaching them about." Gun. So this is kind of, this is, this is where the Democrat. I mean, this is a party, unfortunately, we could go all day on kind of their, their inability to kind of strike while the irons are or, or take the initiative. But when Joe Biden finally, finally comes out and gives a speech and says, semi-fascism, semi-fascism, what happens? Not just the right go crazy, his own party, Dick Durbin comes out and says, he went too far. I wouldn't use that kind of language. So this is the problem here, is that even when, you, even when a Democrat does come out, and kind of really come out strong and hard in a popular way, by the way. Whenever Biden does do these strong interventions, his poll ratings go up, surprisingly, not surprisingly. Uh, your own party come to kind of hamstring you and say, no, 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 dial it back down, dial it back down. We're the ones who are supposed to be on the defensive always.
2: But the messaging is important, right? Because uh, when Biden said semi fascism, he actually blurted it out at a Maryland fundraiser. It got out. And then after all the hand wringing, like you said, the base is like, oh, Good for Biden. It actually helped them in the in the upcoming midterm elections when they fought for Social Security, when they went, when they made women's rights yeah. a kitchen table issue. All these were top five issues, right? So leadership, uh, kind of creating the message and, and being firm so, with I mean, the message, and leading, Le-
3: leaning into the argument, right? When, are the, when think of right. Biden's high points as a president. It's when he's passing the American rescue plan without any Republican support and calling them out in the way. It's when he's saying semi-fascism and running a powerful midterms campaign on democracy and on abortion rights, which works in the midterm. And it's recently in the State of the Union, when he literally gets into an argument with Republicans in the crowd in real time, poll ratings go up not on down.
2: And, and especially on social security, and it kind of leads the majority because when you're a leader who actually gives a bold message, it does influence people. So- That leads me to what we're witnessing right now, because I want your thoughts on this. Uh, For those who aren't following Middle East politics, very quickly, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are pouring out in the streets because Benjamin Netanyahu, who I call the herpes of Israel, currently serving his sixth term, is trying to take a play from Viktor Orban and authoritarians and trying to hamstring the very powerful judiciary. Uh, He's facing corruption charges. He has amassed himself with a ruling coalition of hard-right extremist religious zealots, and Israelis, uh, pretty much diverse Israeli coalition brought the country to a standstill uh, on Monday. Uh, Netanyahu's son promoted conspiracy theory. I don't know if you all have heard this, that the State Department was behind the uh, the, the protest, right? Israel receives uh, diplomatic backing from the United States, uh, military backing, maybe, economic backing, unshakable bond, even though Netanyahu has slapped figuratively Biden in the face numerous times even though settlements are expanding, even though there's an occupation. And even still, uh, Joe Biden and Democrats uh, have not taken the lead, in my opinion, to say, hey, 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 maybe we can use our leverage and maybe we can use this moment to set a new course and maybe message uh, to make sure that we stand up for human rights and actually push Netanyahu to moderate. Uh, On this particular issue, Mehdi, and it's a big issue, Uh, why aren't Democrats, enough Democrats, more Democrats taking the lead when it comes to a better policy with Israel, especially when it concerns Palestinians, when the youth, it's an amazing stat, the youth actually, the under 30, has a much more critical view of Israel and its right-wing policies than ever before.
3: Well, in fact, the entire Democratic base, if you look at the recent University of Maryland survey that came out for the first time ever, Uh, the Democratic base is more sympathetic to Palestinians and to Israelis, uh, which is a credit to human rights activists and people on the left, uh, including liberal Jewish activists who have made the argument. Uh, A couple of things. One is uh, Netanyahu's son, of course, has a history of pushing uh, conspiracy theories. He even pushed George Soros' anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, Uh, despite being (laughs) Jewish himself. It's ridiculous, obviously, to say the State Department behind these protests. These were organic, uh, historic, uh, local protests led by Israelis, as you say, from across the spectrum. I saw a great tweet from someone saying, "How come the far right are not saying this time that Jews are behind these protests?" Because for once, the Jews are behind these protests. <laughs> it was a great, it's a great meme online. Um, but it was it, look, they've, historic protests. I welcome the protests. I think, like a lot of people, we admire uh, when people take to the streets to stand up for basic rights. And it seems to have worked for the short term. Let's see. I, I'm a bit more cynical. I know what Netanyahu's like. I suspect this is his attempt just to kind of uh, dilute the energy, let the energy dissipate, let the world move on, and then he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. Um, so from Netanyahu's perspective, he's a very savvy politician. He knows what he's doing. But you know, in terms of the American role, I think it's very interesting that there was American pressure applied on Netanyahu, certainly behind the scenes, and on the Israeli parliament and the parties across the spectrum. Which is a reminder that hey, American pressure could work on an Israeli government when it comes to this policy. Wonder why it doesn't work when it comes to another policy. Maybe. Uh, the Americans could put pressure on Israel to stop building illegal settlements and to make sure the Palestinians uh, have full rights. So we know the power of American pressure is there. We know that we give more than $3 billion a year and protect Israel in international forums. Um, Daniel did a tweet saying, even to our best of friends, we say Israel's a sovereign country. You know, don't tell us what to do. It's like, all right, well, can you give back the $3 billion a year that you take from it? Um, but I would say this. What's interesting is, yes, Democrats on the issue of Israel have always being almost as bad, if not sometimes worse than Republicans. Um, and Joe Biden, It is you know I've been someone who's said on the record that Joe Biden has impressed me. He's been a better president than I thought he would be. He's been more progressive than previous Democratic presidents. And I include Barack Obama, Bill Clinton there in my lifetime. But of course, Israel-Palestine, he's awful, uh, like most American presidents. And the issue then becomes which Democrats are willing enough to be uh, bold enough to come out and say, you know what, there is another way. We can chart a different path. It won't cost us votes. It won't uh, lead to us being smeared as anti-Semites. It won't destroy Middle East politics, and we won't be betraying our democratic values. In fact, we'll be standing up for our values because a lot of politicians who support Israel, especially Democrats, they get very annoyed when you say, "Is it because of? Uh, is it because of geopolitics? Is it because of military aid? Is it because of AIPAC? Is it because of what is the reason?" And they say, "No, it's because of our shared values." And I say, "That's fine. Let's let's embrace that. Okay, shared values. What are the shared values?" between the modern Democratic Party and this far-right Israeli government. I keep saying this. The same Democrats who call out Marjorie Taylor Greene at home are not willing to call out members of this Israeli government who make Marjorie Taylor Greene look like a, uh, look like a socialist communist, right? These people, <laughs> the, the people in the Israeli government, Itmar Ben-Gavir, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, these people are open fascists. They are openly inciting violence. They, one of them has been convicted. I mean, as far as I know, no Republican politician I know of has actually been convicted of racism, inciting racism and supporting a banned terrorist organization. Itmar Ben-Gavir, the Homeland Security Minister, has. So that's the government that Democrats are now dealing with. Now is the moment for Democrats to say, you know what? On the basis of our shared values that we say is why we support Israel, we can't support this government. That is a fundamental point. Now, Bernie Sanders, Jamal Bowman, Uh, Some members of the Democratic Party left have come out in recent days. Uh, Jamal Bowman on my show on Sunday and said, yes, we need to talk about aid to Israel. We need to talk about leverage. We need to talk about putting conditions on aid. And actually, this isn't even a left-wing position. Pete Buttigieg, who's not seen as some mad lefty, when he was running for president, people forget, he said he was willing to talk about conditions on aid uh, if Israeli uh, settlement building continues and annexation continues. Elizabeth Warren said something similar. So the debate is now starting to be had. But again, come back to the theme of my book. You can't have the argument unless someone is willing to come out and make the argument and be uncomfortable and get in people's faces and be disruptive and take some hits to have a good faith argument about, hold on, what is our relationship with Israel? What pressure should we be applying to Israel? Why do we give unconditional aid to a government that, as I say, makes Donald Trump look moderate?
1: You know, one one quick uh, question for you on the on what we have seen, what we've seen in Israel in terms of, and I'm t- talking particularly around the people coming into the streets, what we've seen in Iran with the women going into the streets. I said earlier this week, as I'm watching, and the and the people in France taking to the streets, like mm, shutting yeah. down you know, sanitation, shutting down the banks, shutting down everything, because they've had it with their governments, yeah. right? Right, wrong, or what have you. They've had it. And I said this week on a video that I did on TikTok, I said, where is the national fucking protest around school shootings? Like we're all living on edge. We're all living in a place of fear. You're talking about the scariest time of day is dropping your kid off at school. That is madness. Right. The scariest time, we shouldn't, we should not. And I'm tired of hearing people say we shouldn't have to live like this. And so I said, you know what, maybe it's time that we grind this fucking country to a halt. Maybe it is time that every single teacher, that every single aide, that every single doctor and nurse, that every single banker, um, every single person walk out, right. And say, until we have, until, until we shift our policies that are about the majority of the people's safety instead of the 35% that own 400 million guns, right? That we're done.
3: This is where activists have been trying to take people for a while. I had Manuel Oliver on uh, All In with Chris Hayes. I was guest hosting earlier this week. And he's a father who lost his son at Parkland. Mm. And he said, this is what we want. We want a national day of action, a strike, a collective national strike where people just stop until we take this seriously. Because again, no other countries dealing with this. Interesting, you mentioned kind of not just you know, Israel and Iran, but you mentioned France. We've seen these kind of massive protests. And in England, I'm from the UK, I saw a lot of British commentators on the left saying, how come the French are throwing down because the retirement age is being raised from 62 to 68, whatever it is? And in the UK, where the economic conditions are much worse than in France, where living standards will be taking a much bigger hit post Brexit than anywhere on the continent, nobody's taken to streets in the same way. What is going on there? And you're, you're asking the same question, here, Dan, and I wonder. Is it an Anglo-American thing? Is it Anglo-Saxon mm. thing? What is it culturally the way we're just much more willing to get beaten down by the people in power or screwed over by the uh, the people, you know, the the point 0.1% is in our financial sectors in a way that we don't take you. Now, look, when Trump was elected, we all remember the Women's March was inspiring and mm-hmm. was pretty huge. Um, and I I do wonder what will happen if Trump gets back into office, in especially in an illegitimate way in 2024. Mm. Um, you know, if the coup had succeeded in 2021, in January, 2021, would we have seen kind of the kind of protests we've seen around the world here? I suspect in some places we probably would, that would, have, that may have been the breaking point, but you're right. Why do we need Trump to be the breaking point? Why isn't there more public action, collective anger over the fact that we have to live in fear of gun? uh, that we, you know, that we have people, uh, you know, abortion rights is an interesting one. Last summer, the white house came out and said, you know what, we know what we're doing here. We don't need to follow activists who aren't in line with public opinion. You'll remember that was a statement they put out. Meanwhile, activists took to the streets in places like Kansas and won major national, statewide votes, right? So people power did work on abortion rights. It can work to an extent on democracy and voting reform and saving our free and fair elections. And maybe it can work on guns because, as I said at the start of this conversation, one of the reasons we've not had gun control is very simple. We have a political system that doesn't reflect majority opinion in this country. Mm -hmm. The Republican Party survives in this country because it survives on the basis of a two-party system that allows them to take power with minority support. The entire Senate, the entire Electoral College, it's all based around minority rule. And as long as that continues to be the case, democracy will take a beating in this country because we won't have uh, rule by the majority.
2: Everyone, thanks. Uh, for listening Mehdi thanks for joining us even though you're fasting uh, and haven't slept uh, read his book Win Every Argument which is a New York Times bestseller where he makes the case that you yes you can argue and win arguments just like him and watch a show The Mehdi Hassan Show which is on MSNBC and also streams on Peacock thank you all for joining us I'm Mujahid Ali
1: and I'm Danielle Moody and we will be back next week if in fact we have a country
2: left inshallah